the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, here we are back for the Wednesday, May 13th edition of Lifeline. How you doing today? Trust you're having a good week so far under the new normal here. And um, be prepared to hunker down for rain. Some dark clouds in the skies. Weatherman's going to present us with a little bit of moisture. Not enough to uh, avert the concerns over another California drought, I'm afraid. But uh, listen, the plants will enjoy it. And um, yeah, you're stuck inside anyway, so, you know, why not enjoy it too? Well, good to have you with us on this edition of the program. Coming up later on tonight, we've asked Bob Zadek to join us. And we're going to shift gears with Bob into an area that is his foremost region of expertise. He is a lawyer and a CPA by trade, and he specializes in business funding, business finance. And we're going to talk a bit about the bailout packages, where things are in the U.S. economy. And um, as he hinted to me in a conversation earlier today, um, he's got a perspective on this that I think you will find so encouraging the um, Bob is usually pretty staid and straightforward. Rarely do you see him bouncing off the walls, but I have a sense his prediction for America will have you bouncing off the walls in a good way. And we'll find out more when he joins us later on in tonight's program. All right, let's get some perspective on where we are now. Day 50 of the lockdown in India. And since the shelter-in-place orders began back in March... So far, India, the world's most populous nation with 1.353 billion inhabitants, has suffered 77,553 cases of COVID-19 and sadly 2,528 deaths. Now, to put that in perspective for you, the United States has thus far 1,428,000 cases of COVID-19. That is 18 times the number of cases in India and of 85,000 deaths representing 33 times the number of lives that have been lost to COVID-19 in India. And again, be mindful, India has a population of four times that of the United States. Many credit an early decision by Prime Minister Modi to essentially force the entire country into shelter in place. And as much as this has gone a great way toward sparing lives, it's also had unforeseen consequences, even if we've experienced unforeseen consequences here in the United States. And that is India has a largely mobile workforce, people coming from the countryside to cities for work, suddenly told, you must go home. But how far is home? How will you get there? What will you find when you arrive? These are all the questions that millions of Indians are having to struggle with. And, of course, um, 
most frighteningly those at the real edge of life. Upwards of 73 million severely poor Indians that have been impacted by all this. Let's get some first-hand perspective, and most importantly, gain some understanding in terms of not the backdrop of just the bad news, but how God is working in the midst of all of this. We're joined now by K.P. Yohannan, founder and director of Gospel for Asia. And Pastor Yohannan, great to have you back on the program. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be with you here, um, and I'm, I'm so glad. Thank you for having me be with you today. We appreciate the opportunity to get some first-hand knowledge of what's going on in India. We have a large Indian population here in the San Francisco Bay Area, many folks with connections to people back in India that are concerned about what's going on there. And as I indicated, um, KP, while certainly the decision of the prime minister to lock the country down early has helped to prevent uh, untold carnage in relationship to COVID-19 cases and deaths, Nevertheless, there's been challenges, and and some of those challenges, as I suggest, um, literally left millions of people sort of uh, stranded. Tell us what's been going on. Yeah, let me um, tell you a a, a little incident that might help, you know, like a window that opens uh, the whole world to us. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, somebody sent me a real photograph from the city of Bombay, uh, a city which I think has 17, 18 million people. And um, uh, 24 hours, uh, day and night, you'll have uh, people, people, people everywhere. For example, there's a railway station built by English people called Victoria Station. Uh, any time of the day, you will have three, four, five hundred thousand people on that um, area every second uh, train is running electric train carrying people and these the streets are always full of people and one more thing you'll notice no matter where you go in bombay on the streets all of a sudden you will have 30 40 children uh, all around you hands out begging pleading with you please give me a few pennies buy a piece of bread i'm dying my parents are hungry the mothers carrying the little babies and all that and this photograph that was sent to me happened to be a little boy, about five years old, something like that, hardly wearing much clothes on him. But then there's a tiny baby, maybe five, six months old, sitting in his lap without any clothes, a little boy. And they both are crying their eyes out. You can see tears running down. And um, and the picture uh, explained about um, um, these two beggar boys the children on the streets of Bombay, and the entire Bombay is empty, empty, completely empty, not a human being. And the uh, cars uh, that were moving by millions on streets, none. So I began to imagine myself the one year or so I spent in Bombay, how these kids will find their food, who is going to feed them, what about the 100,000 children on the streets living by begging, making a living? Now, you see, the coronavirus is a problem. And I think we Americans understand it much more, the severity of it. But in India and Bangladesh and Bhutan and many, many of these nations and Pakistan, it is not just coronavirus. It is a starvation. It is 
multiplied millions that make their living by daily wages. All that is gone, and they are stranded. And 60% of the uh, communities don't have electricity. And, um, um, you know, this is, this is where uh, most people don't understand about the virus. It's not just it's going to kill everybody in India, but I think in these nations you're going to have endless millions die of starvation. And I remember uh, we have over 12,000 congregations, churches scattered all through these uh, regions, and um, uh, one church, they cook 500 meals a day, and with the help of the local police, they put it on the streets uh, with uh, 15, 20 feet in distance uh, space, and people come and take their food which is the meal for their entire family. And uh, one old grandma, um, 80, 90-year-old, um, living in a little hut all alone, when our people brought food to her, she said, I, I was prepared to die. I have nothing else to live for. Nobody cares. You must be sent by God to help me. And um, that is the picture of what coronavirus is doing in many of these uh, poor, um, downtrodden countries, uh, but then this made it a million times more worse. And this reason why I have communicated with our missionaries and workers all over these nations, please, uh, this is the time to show Christ's love and mercy to people and uh, do everything you can day and night. Take care of yourself at the same time. Um, uh, you know, Mother Teresa was asked often, Mother, why you do this, cleaning the lepers um, with your own hands, and you carry the babies that are sick and dying and eight patients? She said, this is Jesus I am cleaning. This is Jesus I'm caring for. And I said, everyone around you, no matter who they are, um, let Christ be seen through your life by giving them food and clothes and medicines and whatever. And these are opportunities. It is not uh, that we are saying, oh, my goodness, this is a terrible situation. No, this is our opportunity, especially as Christians, to say, Lord, I want to be part of caring for um, the poor, the way to show your love. And certainly we're reminded in Scripture, as you do so unto the least of these, you do so unto me. And I think you're absolutely right. As much as it is easy to couch this current pandemic in negative terms, the number of cases, the number of deaths, even as I mentioned at the top of the program tonight, um, let us be mindful that in the midst of all of this, God can use these circumstances for his glory. Certainly he's captured the attention of so many that perhaps never pondered their own mortality two months ago that now suddenly are asking the questions, well, what happens when I die? And where will I go if that happens to me? And am I ready? And so to essentially come in and seize the moment is so critically important, and, and especially now in India, because as K.P. Yohannan suggests, uh, this is a uh, an important crossroad, but a potentially dangerous one as well because of the severe risk to life. And it's not just because of the disease itself. It's the, it's the fallout of the disease, that there is potentially more that could lose their lives in India because of simple starvation than even succumb 
to COVID-19. We'll talk about why that is and how you can help in a moment. If you've just joined us, our honor today to visit with K.P. Yohannan, founder and director of Gospel for Asia. Information available on the web at gfa.org. We'll take a time out, get you updated right now on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center at 517. Here is the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation with us as the founder and director of Gospel for Asia, K.P. Yohannan, with an update as to um, the impact of the COVID-19 virus on the nation of India. And, um, you know, as we mentioned, there are aspects of the Indian um, community that, that live on the fringes all the time. It's a, it's a vastly, un, unbelievably large country. And it has a lot of great resources and a lot of great challenges. One of the big challenges, of course, has been poverty. And and KP, this is especially troubling when we see the economy, in some ways, like we have in many other countries, shut down in order to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, stranding millions of people, cutting off all tourism, and to, to fall between the cracks is very easy, particularly for children that literally live on the street. And I suppose some listening right now would say, well, wait a minute, Pastor KP, aren't there social services, aren't there safety nets built in that would prevent these kids from starving to death? Well, you know, when you think about, um, you know, believe it or not, 90% of the world energy and resources uh, is used by some 6% of the world population that is here in the United States. And uh, this is something that we don't even think about. Ask our audience if they ever had their little kids, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, middle of the night waking up screaming, Mommy, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm hungry, please give me something to eat. And the parent says, we have nothing to give. For days, we have nothing here. And that is no exaggeration. And here, the uh, pandemic and the problems uh, drive us to uh, shopping malls to look for toilet papers and um, um, tissue papers and stuff like that. Uh, but um, for um, untold millions uh, that are in these communities, removed from um, everything, uh, they survive. That is all they think about. And uh, here are people eating grass and um, uh, bark of the tree and some even kids eating mud uh, because of hunger. And I don't make up these things. I'm telling you that um, um, DFA, um, working with thousands and thousands of churches in these countries, our number one priority is somehow get some food uh, not luxury, but just for them to survive during this time. And I believe um, this um, is one of the rare opportunities for the people of God, uh, without hurting ourselves too much, that we be able to share um, our prayer, our concern in helping people in these nations. And we are seeing um, literally thousands of people uh, responding to us, literally saying, because you came and gave us food, we are able to survive. And we do 
all this in the name of Jesus. And I think our brothers and sisters in America, first time, we understand something else. You know, death is part of life. And um, uh, people store treasures and money and everything else on earth, here, security, repairman, the plan, everything, thinking that we are going to live here forever. We are not. Um, and we are not made for time. We are made for eternity. And I think uh, our concern should be John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And therefore, we, those are destined to be with the Lord, should do everything and accept uh, whatever um, suffering we need to, uh, which cost uh, us something when we fast and pray and give away what we want for someone else. And I challenge everyone, this is the time to ask God to break our hearts with the things that break his heart. And um, uh, there are 62 million children uh, on the streets of India alone, uh, working and begging, trying to make a living. And we have to get to them with hope. And it's not trying to make them rich or famous, but rather just to give them enough uh, food and means to survive. Why? Because they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear about the Lord. And they are not waiting to die. They are dying now. And that's why GFA, and we are not the only ones doing these kind of things. And thank God for every uh, Christian organization or church just doing that. But we um, happen to have the most unique setup of our 12,000 congregations scattered throughout these uh, regions where quickly we can um, move out and do things to help the people. And that's one good thing God is doing uh, with us. And again, um, Jesus said, a day is going to come. Uh, he will say, whatever you have done for this, you have done it for me. I was hungry, I was naked, I was um, hurting, I was sick, and I didn't have anyone to care for me. I was lonely. And you cared for me. And David said, Lord, what are you talking about? Jesus said, well, you remember the radio broadcast to that guy from India? That's an interview was done. And they're asking a lot of questions. And you heard about it. Then you decide to fast and pray. And uh, you decide to take your resources, what you can, and give it to people who are doing this work to feed the poor. And by the way, the other end those hungry people happen to be me. And this is something very sovereign and uh, very serious. And I think it's an opportunity and the privilege the Lord gave us. And certainly so, I think, KP, we're, we're at this interesting intersection in, in history right now, and it's largely going to be how we respond to it um, as to whether or not this comes out or turns out to be a horrifically negative experience, not by any means to to diminish the amount of suffering, the loss of life, the illness, that's all severe, no doubt about it. But I think perhaps the, the glimmer of hope can be, as we see not only in our own nation, but in countries like India where there's a hunger, and we've seen the church growing, oftentimes even in spite of a lot of persecution, there is a genuine hunger in India to know the truth. And right now, the opportunity to be able to not just share the truth, but demonstrate Christ's love at a time when people are needy, seeking answers, and searching for hope. Uh, this can be an opportunity for the church to really shine, can't it? 
Yeah, you know, one more thing I would say, I've been here 40 years and uh, we've been through tsunami, the earthquake um, in Nepal and the typhoon in Bangladesh, all kind of places. I tell you something amazing. I, someone who traveled all over the world, I must tell you, there's no people in the whole world as kind and generous, loving and giving than Americans. And um, uh, this is even in our struggles. Uh, I'm amazed how gracious Americans are. Um, uh, people don't know this. Uh, during tsunami, the world was shaken like crazy. 90% of all the resources given to all missions from all over the world, 90% came out of the United States of America. Why? Whether you are a Christian or not, I am amazed how the, the DNA, the, 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 the way Americans think is that we need to be kind and uh, gracious, and people are responding. And even today, uh, this uh, coronavirus season, when we tell people about it, like I'm doing right with you, you would be amazed how many people write and say, I wish I could give you a lot of money, but here is my $5. Or, you know, the, the kindness, uh, the people of America are the most amazing human beings on planet Earth in terms of kindness and compassion and, and you know think about it where is god you show me god and god says i love you but more god says i am love and uh, i believe in a personal eternal god i believe in holy trinity but how will the people of the world will see god when we show them love and tell them this is because of jesus and our people uh, whatever we say, we got some problems here. I don't say America is a perfect place, but tell you something: if God will show mercy to this country and will come out of this crisis, and the prosperity will be there. Not in terms of this uh, charismatic, you know, uh, prosperity preachers talk about prosperity gospel. But I think God is going to watch over us and bless this nation um, because of the massive number of people living in this nation that are so kind, so uh, giving and caring uh, for people who are suffering. And I thank God for that. It's certainly an important opportunity for all of us. And I think um, to, to um, draw to a conclusion our conversation, KP, uh, we need to be urging the church here in all of the Western world to be praying for the church in India, um, and to also do what we can to play our part. And not all of us can go and travel and see and do, uh, but we can certainly all pray, that we can all do. And for those that are in a position to help support ministry organizations like Gospel for Asia that are doing an important work there, that are there day in, day out, boots on ground, not just during a crisis, but all the time, um, and, and impacting from one end of the continent to another, uh, there is a huge percentile of um, children, for example, that Gospel for Asia is helping to literally stave off from starvation. So prayerfully consider what you can do to get behind the ministry and work of Gospel for Asia. Information available on the web at gfa.org. That's gfa.org. Our thanks to K.P. Yohannan, founder and director of Gospel for Asia, for being with us tonight. K.P., you take care of yourself. Good to visit with you again. Thank you. Blessings on you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. You as well, and God bless you when you're with us.
532 from KFAX. Let's get you updated on some traffic right now. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The COVID-19 outbreak that is inducing pretty intense volatility in the global financial markets and dramatically impacting operations and revenues for a variety of industries across the country and the globe raises several key questions concerning the impact on lenders and borrowers and the operation of business on a day-to-day basis. We've asked attorney and CPA Bob Zadek to help business people better identify, anticipate, and respond to some of the key questions, issues, and considerations that may arise in their existing or prospective financing. Bob Zadek is the founder of LendersFunding.com and is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m., the answer. And Bob, a privilege is always to have you with us. The privilege is all mine, Craig. Thanks for inviting me. Let's dig down into the nitty-gritty here. We're going to spend some time in some of the technical arena because I think it's going to be very critical information for business people that are seeking to keep themselves afloat in the new economy here and and dealing with the challenges of how do I pay my employees, how do I keep the doors open, how do I keep cash flowing in order to keep my business above water. But before we get to all of that, let's sort of Take a moment, if you can, and give us your 30,000-foot-high perspective on where things are. So much of the focus at the moment is open the country back up, let's get the economy rolling again, promises that by the end of the year and into 2021, it'll be happy days are here again. But I have to wonder, how true really is that, and how much of this profoundly unusual economic event that we're experiencing right now will have everlasting impact that will reach into potentially every way in which not only we do business, but we make and earn and spend money and and maybe filtering down to every dynamic, every aspect of life here in America, if not even an impact on the global economy. Give us your thoughts. How severe of an event is this? Well, I think it is probably the most profound, far-reaching economic, I did not say health, I said economic event and political event. I will explain why this is a major political event, but it is an economic and political event, the effects of which will be felt on by every single American for the foreseeable and maybe the unforeseeable future. This is the mother of all big deals. It will readjust everything in political and economic life in America, the details of which hopefully we'll have time to explore during the show. But this is a very big deal economically and politically. Differentiate, if you would, from a historical perspective. When America entered into the Great Depression in October of 1929, that was an economic event that led to a significant economic event, the likes of which we never really crawled back out of fully until the advent of the Second World War. This was a little bit different in the sense that it didn't begin as an economic event. It began as a global health crisis that has had significant economic 
implications. So is the difference in the way all of this got started in 2020 versus 1929 going to play any role here, or is that immaterial? Oh, it'll play a profound role, Craig. It is uh, in, 19, in the Great Depression, and indeed even in the, in more recent memory, Great Recession uh, in roughly 2006, seven and eight, uh, the, the great, the so-called Great Recession, both of those were caused by economic events, not that is within the economic system, within the market system. The problem today is caused by an existential, an external event, which is the virus. The economy, in all respects, was doing fine. And an existential event happened to put the brakes on the economy. The existential event was both the virus itself and, as exacerbated from an economic standpoint, by very bad political decisions. We simply weren't ready and weren't up to the, we being America, weren't ready and weren't up to the task of dealing with the virus until late in the game, and even now, we're still learning on the job. So the fact that it's existential means the economy is fine, which then means take away the external event, the health crisis, and the economy just swings back into action. In 1929, the economy itself was broken. We had profound tariffs, we had bad tax policy, a bad monetary policy, and all of those are economic events. So they were all broken. So the economy cannot swing back into action until the economic damage and the, and the bad economic decisions were fixed. Here, there's nothing wrong with the economy. It is better than ever. So take away the disease... And the body is now fixed again and ready to fire up. So I think the, if government would get out of the way, the economy is likely to snap back much faster because the demand is there and the supply is there. It's just that the virus and the government have interjected both of those, the virus and the government, between the demand and the satisfaction of the demand with the supply. Both are there, but the funnel in the middle has been closed, so the demand cannot connect up with the supply and vice versa. Now, there's another very different factor in our response today from the response we had in 1929, and it ultimately cost Hubert Hoover his job, and that was the approach that the economy will right itself, that there's been a major correction on Wall Street. It laid an egg, as the New York Times said, but this too shall pass. Just allow market factors to do their thing, and eventually we'll get through all of this. That was the approach it didn't make any difference, at least not in the short term. And so Americans turned him out and put in FDR. FDR came in with this alphabet soup of different programs and plans and schemes in order to try and get the economy back on its feet again. And as I said earlier, arguably the only really thing that worked in making that happen was not the efforts of the administration, but rather America's entering into the Second World War. That said, when we had the last major economic event within recent 
memory, 2008-2009, the, um, the feeling there was we needed to not do what they didn't do in 1929, meaning we needed immediate and significant intervention. The Fed had to get involved, Congress had to get involved, lending programs had to be opened up, every aspect of the economy needed some kind of a band-aid put on it by the federal government. We've seen much of that repeated again here in the last many weeks. SBA loan programs, Paycheck Protection, the CARES Act, all of this designed to try and stave off this from getting any more um, harmful to to the fundamentals of the economy at a time when, as you suggest, apart from the, um, the biology of it all, the economy of the United States was doing very well. Unemployment was at record lows. So is there a correlation that we can see here in over-government reaction that may, in fact, in an effort to try and stave off a disaster, might unwittingly end up creating one? Well, in, in, the, in the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, remember, the, while versions of history will vary, but there is one scholarly thought-through version of what happened is that the crisis itself was caused by profoundly bad governmental decisions. This is not the show for it. We could do a whole show on what happened in 08, but I dare say the economy was behaving abnormally. It was uh, stimulated excessively by government policies causing the housing bubble, too much available credit. There were profound mistakes made that caused the crisis in 2007 and 2008. That was not an accident. That was government-caused, and that was the main problem. And so we have a problem caused by government and then fixed by government, allegedly, although there's a question how much government intervention was actually needed. That's for another show. So that was profoundly different. That has nothing in common with what we are experiencing today. Remember, today we have robust supply, robust demand, limited unemployment, therefore huge demand, huge supply. And the problem is there's a barbed wire fence between supply and demand, which means there's no transactions. People want to buy stuff to have the money. They can't buy it. People want to sell stuff. They can't get to the buyers. There's a barbed wire fence, Berlin Wall. And so, the, and that barbed wire fence is a combination of the virus itself and people behaving to protect themselves appropriately and the government who built the barbed wire fence. So once you, as Reagan said, tear down that wall, well, then you will see hordes of buyers and hordes of sellers connecting up once again. So this is all at this economic problem has nothing to do with the economy itself. With us today is CPA, attorney, and syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, Bob Zadek. Bob is the founder of LendersFunding.com, and we're getting his insights on the current state of the economy in the light of COVID-19 and where things are potentially headed in the coming days and weeks. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the program. A very special guest joining us today. He is an attorney, a CPA, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, and he hosts the program, The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast every Sunday morning here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 860 AM, The Answer. Bob Zadek is with us today to offer some insights in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on the economy where he sees things headed short term, and just how challenging it's going to be to do business in America in the coming months, and certainly the, the global impact as well. Bob, let's pivot to that for a moment, if we can. It was barely two weeks ago, with not much fanfare at all, that Wells Fargo announced that they were going to cease providing HELOCs, these home equity line of credit loans, that clearly, at least in my mind, indicated that, number one, if somebody defaulted, they didn't want to be second in line. That number two, perhaps they felt that in certain markets, there may be a significant enough devaluation of real estate that if they are the second um, uh, lender position on a piece of property, that that could have them show up uh, a little bit short. And so as a result, they were sort of um, cutting their losses in anticipation of by announcing they will no longer provide HELOCs. Does that essentially transmit the notion that Wells Fargo was concerned about the health of the economy for some time to come? Well, the economy, that word um, is a complex word. And to say something wrong with the economy kind of doesn't really nail it down. Because what one can conclude from that announcement is the following. Number one, that announcement, no doubt, I say this not with inside knowledge, but understanding of how the banking system works in general. The first thought that comes to mind is the regulators pressured or encouraged or hinted or signaled to Wells Fargo that Wells Fargo should consider doing this the way the government issues what is called a guidance. When Governor Newsom issues a guidance, a guidance is not a law. It's a a suggestion. But it's a suggestion of the type of your money or your life. You are given a choice, your money or your life, but it's kind of an illusory choice. Well, a guidance from the government or a suggestion from the government has a lot more power and intimidation than a guidance from you and I. So the first conclusion I reach is there is the government having a role in this. I don't know how much. I don't know if I might, but that's what I think. That's based upon my understanding of the system. Second of all, uh, Wells Fargo is concluding, obviously, that it expects real property values to decline. Because if real property values don't decline, then who cares what happens to the economy? You have a house, you have a mortgage on a house, and there is sufficient equity for you to get paid back. And so long as you have collateral, what happens to the borrower doesn't affect you. Now, it's kind of a nuisance, but it doesn't cost you any money. I'm a collateral lender, uh, Craig, as you have mentioned, with lender funding. And when I learned how to be a collateral lender a long time ago... I learned that collateral wasn't the most important thing. It was, to paraphrase Vince Lombardi, it was the only thing. And so long as you had collateral, you couldn't get hurt. So, therefore, Wells Fargo has concluded that 
there's going to be a decline in the value of real property so that if and when it has to foreclose and convert its loan into a repayment, the house isn't going to have sufficient value. That's the only logical conclusion to make. Now, of course, banks would rather not foreclose. They would rather the borrowers pay back their loans. Therefore, Wells is also concluding that the, the likelihood the borrower will have the cash flow, the income from earnings or whatever income the borrower has, that income is going to disappear, the borrower can't service the loan, and therefore the bank is going to have to foreclose. And lenders, while they get some comfort from the fact they have collateral, they would rather the loan be paid as agreed and not have to foreclose. So those are the logical conclusions one would reach from that announcement. Now, there is also irrationality, which who can, who can understand irrationality? I don't traffic in irrationality, so I will leave the irrational guesses to others. Fair enough. Now, let's talk about this in the grander scheme of a an issue that not only does Wells Fargo's announcement um, shed a little light on, but we've seen it, too, with the rush to apply for the Paycheck Protection Loans and the SBA loans and, and the CARES Act and uh, federal government passing uh, bailout programs of over $2.5 trillion. Clearly, a lot of this points to the notion that many businesses – if not even a handful of major corporations, have a serious cash flow problem. The idea that they can't carry themselves for a month or two and suddenly they're on the verge of closing their doors because there's just no liquidity there um, is certainly troubling to, to uh, for a lot of reasons, I think, not least of which is the notion that suddenly we're, we're reaching out to the federal government looking for bailout money at a time when... <laughs> Two twenty-five trillion dollars, and and no, <laughs> no sign it's going to ease up anytime soon. Um, speak, if you would, to this broader issue of of lack of liquidity in the markets. What happened to all of that cash, and why seemingly are there so many businesses that are just so cash tight or cash poor? Well, what happens is a business one runs a business. Um, based upon uh, trying to be conservative and anticipate all the things that might happen, and do you have reserves to cover it, just like one ought to run their personal affairs. And an event this sudden and of this magnitude, generally in small and medium-sized businesses, could not be reserved for. It would pile up too much capital to be dead capital. So it just wasn't. Now, the PPP loans, you say, are being made in order to keep businesses solvent. That's not quite, it's pretty much true, but it's more nuanced than that, Greg. The PPP loans are either loans or they are grants. That is, they are loans with uh, huge potential for them to be forgiven, which means they become grants or gifts. Now, what determines that? The business, in order to have the PPP loan forgiven so it becomes a gift, is the business is required to use the proceeds of the loan to pay wages, rent, and other overhead. That is to say, the business has a choice. They cannot borrow money from PPP and fire all the workers and tell them, go away, I'll call you when I'm able to operate again which means the workers would find other activities, and the business, when it's ready to reopen, 
could not reassemble the workforce. So the government invented this PPP loan where it, the, the loan is made to the business. But the business is not allowed to keep it. The business must spend it primarily on payroll, which means, and then when the loan is forgiven, this is nothing other than unemployment insurance dressed up in a disguise. Money goes from the government to the business to the workers, and it never comes back, which means the business is just a middleman, and the money is really going from the government to the workers for not working. Well, that sounds like unemployment insurance to me. Therefore, this is the PPP loans are primarily, not exclusively, because you could use them for rent and overhead, but primarily unemployment insurance where the worker gets their full salary instead of uh, reduced unemployment insurance benefits, they get their full salary from the government with the business acting as a middleman. So these PP loans are really unemployment insurance, primarily with a middleman. Bob Zadek, CPA, attorney, host of The Bob Zadek Show, and founder of LendersFunding.com. We're getting Bob's insights on the current state of the economy and what America is going to look like. In the coming days and weeks, as we begin to slowly open up, how profoundly will our life and our business life be impacted? We'll get to that part of the equation as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues.